Tuesday, everybody. Thank you, KDNK listeners, for joining me on the Meet in the Middle show, where we share dialogue on complex issues with local thought leaders with differing opinions. The hope is for listeners to gain new perspective and empower freedom of expression. I'm Dan Richardson, and today's topic is freedom of speech, the good, the bad, and the ugly. <laughs> uh, thanks for joining me, listeners, and thanks to my guests, Brian Whiting and Breeze Richardson, for joining me today. Thank you. Nice being here. Thank you. All right. Uh, my first guest, Brian Whiting, uh, Brian or Mr. Whiting as I knew him, um, <laughs> uh, as a student at Glenwood Springs High School a couple years ago. Um, he's taught marketing, entrepreneurship, and economics at Glenwood High School and in Brush, Colorado for over 40 years. He has also written two textbooks on these subjects, uh, been awarded Teacher of the Year, Man of the Year, and really too many uh, accolades, accolades to be mentioned right here. Um, suffice it to say, it's an honor to have Ryan with us today. So thank you. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. My other guest is Breeze Richardson. No relation. Um, Breeze is the executive director of Aspen Public Radio. She's worked in marketing, communications, and was the producer at WBEZ for some nationally recognized programs you probably recognize, like StoryCorps and Worldview. And also, it's an honor to have Breeze here. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me over at KDNK today. All right. Um, so thanks again for being here and for all that you do for our communities. I don't want to understate that. I think you both are, are excellent examples of how we build strong community uh, on both ends of the valley. Um, freedom of speech is a topic that is not only relevant now, but it serves as the foundation for our Constitution's First Amendment. And to be honest, it's been a little intimidating for me to, to prepare for this show because the topic... Um, you know, the more you dig in, the more the harder it is to decipher um, what's good, bad, and ugly. Um, and I think I'd be hard-pressed to find anyone opposed to free speech. But as the name implies, um, as it is true for multiple amendments, freedom of speech has its pros and cons. For me, the challenge is, uh, and this is a quote from Suzanne Nossel, sustaining a robust, uncompromising defense of free speech, but avoid conflict with an equal, inclusive, and just society. And that's the balance we, we play every day, each and every one of us, as we try and pursue freedom of speech. Um, and Brian, in a text to me, you wrote that free speech is a hard concept to be against, and I agree. Um, but I'm learning that the context really does matter, and both political extreme perspectives seem to be taking issue with it right now uh, in current society. On the one hand, you have people wanting to restrict, restrict speech, that some may perceive as racist or sexist, and, or, um, or, and on the other hand, you have people wanting to ban books about anti-racism and homosexuality. So where do we find that balance? And hopefully today we'll get into some good discussion and provide some uh, fodder for our listeners. So I thought, by again, with the name of the, the, the topic of the show, we'd get into the, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And so first, the good. The First Amendment says, reads, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof 
or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press or the right of the people peaceably to assemble and to petition the government for a redress of, of grievances. Um, easier said than done, right? Um, I thought I'd just start off with kind of an open-ended question and, and getting your thoughts on on the First Amendment and um, um, really just how how we are addressing this amendment. Or, and, and you could talk about the Supreme Court and how they've addressed it, but just your thoughts on the First Amendment. So, Breeze, I'm looking at you first, and I'll, why don't you go first? Well, Dan, the first thing that comes to mind for me is um, how much our current media globally has given us examples of communities and cultures and societies that don't have freedom of speech. Um, and so I think that's immediately where my head goes to the Iranians who have showed up on the streets to protest what they consider changes they want to see in their society, and they've been arrested and killed for that. Um, I think we have you know, numerous examples that have really reflected back for me what it's like to live in a place where I might disagree with someone that's saying it, but they're not going to be jailed or killed for having that viewpoint and expressing it. Um, and so that's given some context for me and what having freedom of speech means, and I think it comes with responsibility, and I think it comes with challenge, and I think about that as a parent as well as being uh, in a community yeah. that's looking to really navigate, I think, some change and some shifts in its own identity. And so where does that leave us? Okay. Um, thank you, Breeze. Brian, any? Uh, well, I wouldn't disagree with any of that. I think, uh, obviously, I think sometimes we might, I, I think freedom of speech is, um, exemplifies the whole exa uh, concept of freedom. We all want to be free and that type of thing. And if we start infringing upon that, what other freedoms are going to go away as well? And I think, you know, something that's traditional in our system and, it's difficult. Uh, there's no doubt about it. I mean, the whole concept in reality, if we're going to have freedom of speech, we have to not only allow somebody to say X, whatever they might want to say, but actually be willing for their fight, to f be willing to fight for their right to say it, uh, even if it's something that we vehemently disagree with. Because I think you just can't start infringing on one thing and expect it not to carry over into something else and so it requires toleration and acceptance on our part and not to overreact and which we see enough of these days I think but I think it just illustrates how important it is to maintain what we all desire in the way our country functions. Thanks Brian. Uh, I, th I think that's interesting how you said it that it's one thing to fight for the specific comment or opinion but with that comes the responsibility of fighting for the right for that person to say that. Uh, and I think that's where, um, that's where the devil's in the details. And, Breeze, am I hearing you correctly that you're saying the U.S. is a good example of protecting freedom of speech where you're not seeing that in other countries? Yeah, and I think, like you, I researched some and read up on some things and kind of had uh, took some opportunities to think about freedom of speech. And... I think, to be honest, was a little surprised at some of the things I take for granted, not necessarily having always been the rules that the Supreme Court is 
about as generous towards freedom of speech right now as they have ever been in our country's history. So I think even being reminded that that needle has moved within our country um, was an interesting thing to think about. And I think a lot of the progress we've seen has been hard fought to get to a place where we say, yeah, I might really disagree with what that guy says, but I'm going to fight for the right for him to be able to say it because I want him, I want to be able to say the thing I want when, when I have something to say. And so I do think um, it's one of those things that in some ways we take for granted that you should be able to say whatever you want to say, but globalization has allowed us to have a, a much closer seat to other cultures and societies and how they've chosen to govern. And it isn't a universal freedom around the world that you should be able to express any idea you have. And your government has to go along with that. Mm-hmm. Excuse me. I think this, what the Supreme, let alone the Constitution, let alone what the Supreme Court has said, actually places a whole lot of responsibility on each one of us to do freedom of speech in a uh, mannerly fashion, you know, that we don't have to, we can attack an issue, we, st- we shouldn't be attacking a person. Mm-hmm. You know, I think it's a great tendency these days, everybody wants to label stuff. And then because you label something, then you label the person who said it as that. And obviously, I don't think that accomplishes a whole lot. Uh, because, you know, if you're trying to convince somebody of some, of your side, so to speak, if you're not doing it in a mannerly fashion and getting all upset and concerned about it, they're not going to listen to you anymore, and you're obviously not going to be very effective. And, I, you know, I think, you know, being a high school teacher for a long time, you're always concept of the manners with kids, you know, how to act and all that type of thing. And I think, the, like I said, the, the way the Constitution, Supreme Court does stuff just places responsibility on us to do that. And that's, if I'm not mistaken, uh, Brian, you often mention that in your uh, in your columns of the Glenwood Post, the personal responsibility aspect of life. Oh, I'm a firm believer that, you know, the ideally, the less the government can be involved in our personal lives, the better that we can all know what we need, what we should do, what and all that better than somebody telling us what to do or mandating what we can do. But then again, that pervases, you know, give, puts responsibility on us to act in that fashion, speak in that fashion, take responsibility and be willing to do stuff and don't rely on ourselves and take command of our own lives and, and kind of behave as we toward others as we would hope they would behave toward us. That might be why uh, the Supreme Court needed to um, consider a uh, Brandenburg versus Ohio in 1969. This was something that I, I learned. So the First Amendment was written. I'm sure the founders thought, okay, good, we're covered. We've got freedom of speech in there. Um, but then life happened, and, and there needed to be some more interpretation. So um, the excerpt I took from that ruling, in, again, in 1969, Brandenburg versus Ohio, uh, quote, constitutional guarantees of freedom of speech except where such advocacy is directed to inciting or producing imminent lawless action, which I interpret to mean includes violence, and there's a couple of sure. other things that are um, have since been expressly, uh, expressly um, prohibited. So, and, and this is where we're getting into, maybe it's not bad, but it's hard. So, Brian, I, I throw this question to you. 
would you acknowledge the harm that can result from freedom of speech? Well, sure. I think if people can, can we all, I guess we're all human beings, you sometimes can uh, want to try to stretch things as far as possible. And you hear people talk sometimes about, well, it's freedom of speech means freedom of action. And I don't think that's obviously not the case because if you're exhibiting freedom of speech, it doesn't mean you can come up and, well, I disagree with you and I'm going to smack you in the nose. Mm-hmm. Or the this business is over here, I'm going to go break the window of this business and loot the store because they, maybe the owner didn't believe as I, uh, ex- you know, their opinion wasn't expressed as what I wanted to do. And I think that's a tendency. I think sometimes I, some people would say I probably take freedom of speech a little too literally in that it is like it says in there, you know, it's freedom of speech or freedom of press. Well, that's words, whether they be spoken or written, it doesn't mean action. Uh, and I think the action it talks about is is verbally and in, write, in written form. Bree's thoughts on the harmful aspects <clears throat> of freedom of speech. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you. I think it's a it's a very fine line. Perhaps not legally, but at least like in my head, it's a very fine line between a hate speech and a hate crime. And so this, I think that's dangerous. That you can say whatever you want. And it can be really hateful, and it can be it can do damage, um, and yet it's protected speech. But the minute that speech turns into breaking windows or attacking somebody or causing a you know inciting violence and those crimes get committed, and to have hate be a motivator for that, we've in fairly recent times said hey, that's like a, there's the crime you did, and then there's the motivation you had for the crime, and we're going to make that punishable. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a really interesting kind of evolution to this idea. Um, And I think it allows or creates a lot of that ambiguity or gray area that has required Supreme Court cases to come in and rule for clarity and has really made it challenging for... um, how do you teach a generation that you can say whatever you want, but there's consequences for saying that? And, and, and again, we're saying all of this in the context of free speech, limiting only what the government does, not private individuals or private companies. Or, and I think that's really gotten um, convoluted in our societal mind mm-hmm. in recent times, that you, you can say whatever you want, but that doesn't mean you're not going to get fired from sure. your private company for doing it. And that that doesn't violate your freedom of speech. It was well intact. You just have consequence for what you did. (laughs) Sure, I had. I can remember back, because I tended to teach juniors and seniors, and, of course, they're dealing, and, you know, the world is hitting them in the forehead that, you know, I'm going to have to go out there and get a job here one of these days and all that. And, and of course, I talked to them about dressing appropriately for an interview. And, you know, students would say, well, I don't dress that way. I, you know, it's, they would try to say, it's freedom of speech for me to dress as I want to and express myself. You know, say. And I learned a long time ago with students, if it doesn't work really well if the first word out of your mouth is no. And so you talk about, well, I can see where you feel that way, you know, however, but you have to understand the boss is in charge. He's creating a company culture and whatever he wants and if this is what is necessary, he doesn't have to hire you, right? And so you kind of have to accept that or else you don't work for him. And I think that's all goes along toward that same thing. You know, uh, uh, 
a student along the same lines, a student asked me once, I, I've always remembered this, and they kind of attacked another student in class about the way they were, I guess you'd say, for no matter what it was. But, and I kind of got on the student about it, and the student posed to me an interesting question I've always remembered. And they said, and they said, well, it's freedom of speech. And what yeah, I can say whatever I want. And what came out of my mouth in response was, well, does your freedom of speech trump or override the other person's right not to be offended? And I didn't have a great answer to that question. But yeah, I just thought, you know, that's kind of in it. Strictly sure. speaking, probably this right, freedom of speech does override that right. Because, mm-hmm. you know, to call the right not to be offended probably writes the wrong word, but expectation or something. But I think that's a lot of what we see now is that people get offended by lots of things. I think, of course, I'm an old guy, but we get offended by things way more than we ever used to. The old concept of political correctness didn't exist. You just ebbed and flowed with it, and you let, tried to let stuff roll off your back, if something, you know, and that type of thing, which people don't do anymore. They try to victimize it to some degree. Yeah, I can think of examples of that, too, and even for me, generationally. I grew up in Kansas, and Fred Phelps was a nationally known figurehead that was um, very much against gay people, gay marriage, uh, adoption policies, I mean, pretty much you name and and grew quite a reputation for picketing funerals and doing, you know, pretty egregious things for sh- sharing his view. And I think in the context of this conversation, it was really interesting to grow up alongside that and really disagree with his viewpoints and the viewpoints of his church and be pretty disgusted when he'd take these really public actions that put his message and his speech and his literal words on megaphone, you know, in your space. But I don't remember any conversations about banning that or prohibiting that. There were other ways that you used that discourse to provoke conversation and discussion and, and to talk about those viewpoints and your disagreement with those viewpoints but I can't really think of any letters to the editors or, <laughs> you know, advocacy campaigns that said, we need to shut him up. We need to right. shut him down. I think there was a reverence for that was crossing a line, mm-hmm. that he had that right, as ugly as it was, to say those words. And it was how we heard them and taught lessons from them and reacted to them that was where we had that personal responsibility to um, grow from that message and push back against it, but not that it should be eradicated. Yeah, for some reason it seems to me that this whole even violence of words, let alone violence of actions, seems to be a more common way to respond to something like that than it used to be. But, you know, then again, I can tend to wonder sometimes, well, am I just not up to date enough or whatever, you know, thinking back too much of how when I grew up and da 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 da. But uh, I think I think it is. It just we didn't seem to have all this violence that we tend to have now. Well, well I would say it has ebbed and flowed. And this, um, Breeze, this is some information you had shared that uh, it was a reminder that in the 19th century, for example, uh, courts allowed punishment of blasphemy. Uh, 
And even during and shortly after World War I, the Supreme Court held that speech tending to promote crime, such as speech condemning the military draft or praising anarchism, could be punished. So it it ebbs and flows. So we (laughs) have experienced that. But getting back to the the bad and the offensive part of free speech, I thought... um, Breeze, the conversation that the three of us had right before the show about uh, Professor Guth in Missouri, can you h- hit a couple highlights? Because I think it speaks to the issue of of the badness and what do you do about it. So do you mind sharing that? Sure. And and I think it gets to some of where the conversation we'd like to, to – the direction we'd like to take the conversation around kind of who's this doing the sanctioning. So in the, this case, in 2013, a – public university professor, so government employee, um, tweeted uh, in response to a national shooting, um, some pretty ugly, probably regrettable after he sent the tweet, um, comments about the NRA. Um, In short, said, you know, next time may it be your sons and daughters. And there was an immediate reaction um, from the legislature, from those in government, from other professors, from teachers and, and students um, and parents, that this was just an absolutely deplorable thing to say, that you would wish harm on a child, that you would uh, be in a position where you felt so strongly about something. And did that cross... Did that professor cross a line in expressing what might have been a personal viewpoint at a dinner party that might have been taken as offensive, but it kind of would have started and stopped there, to him tweeting about it, meaning that it went viral and there was all of this opportunity to really have an opinion about what this professor had said. And... um, the, the, I think what's really interesting about the case is that as all of this pressure was coming down on the university and on the Board of Regents who governed the university to fire this guy, um, one of the many things that uh, came as a, as a consequence of it was that the Board of Regents passed a policy to really dictate what would be appropriate and inappropriate speech on social media. And I don't think, willing to be corrected, but I don't think anybody had really done that yet, had really tried to articulate what, quote, improper use of social media was. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of free speech advocates and a lot of academic freedom, those who who are articulate and speak in the space of academic freedom, really took issue with this policy around improper use of social media and that it was just such a slippery slope and so dangerous um, in the case of this professor, even though there was that concern that you know he threatened children, um, the, you know the state legislature was w- willing to go on the public record and say they would withhold funding from the University of Kansas because of the behavior of this professor. Other legislators jumped in and said, "No, no, 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 no. The the funding of our public universities is not living or dying on one professor's behavior." But there was a lot of anger in the community, and um, even the NRA, who was called out in this tweet, got involved and wrote letters and rallied their, um, fo- you know, their the, those who who wanted to advocate on behalf of the R- IR, uh, NRA to to write letters and call and um, so. 
the ACLU and others really pushed back on it. But, you know, the, the story ends with it not really – nothing really changing. A lot of um, – except that – I think that in some ways the university's cover was that there wasn't really a rule he had broken. He was entitled to free speech. And if we if we didn't want university professors um, who carried the kind of name of the university with them, whether they intended to or not, to say offensive things on social media, then there needed to be a policy that gave them the heads up that that wasn't appropriate and wasn't going to be permitted. And so Professor Guth was not fired. Uh, he, he retired in 2020 after 28 years at the university. Um, he was put on an uh, administrative leave that term, and other professors took the rest of his coursework because it was just bringing all this attention to the university. So, um, And the policy didn't get provo- uh, revoked or removed. I mean, that policy is still in place today on what is deemed improper use of social media. Um, I'm not as familiar as to if anyone's ever been – fired or sanctioned under that policy. Mm. Uh, I think that would that would be interesting to see. But it is a really interesting case to have someone say something that is pretty undeniably gross. Yeah. And then, you know, to have this challenge we were just evoking of like, ooh, do I want to defend that? Well, I guess I do if I want to defend the idea. And of course, social media has added such an interesting layer to all of this. Because like I said, had he just said it at the coffee shop or said it to his wife or said it even in a class, a single classroom, you know, I think the impact would have been a lot different than the impact that social media has now given us to really amplify our message. Brian, I want to put you on the spot, but in (laughs) fairness, I'm going to read the tweet uh, from Professor Guth. He tweeted, the blood is on, and this is in response to a shooting, uh, the blood is on the hands of the NRA. Next time, let it be your sons and daughters. Shame on you. May God damn you. So why I want, how I want to put you on the spot is, was the school right in not firing Professor Guth? I would say yes, uh, as hard as that is, because it is what we would all consider that not sensitive, not smart, mm-hmm. you know, and all that kind of thing. Uh, just because I think you have to, I mean, the school is a, co- is a company in, re- in reality, and every company develops their own culture if they're going to be successful. But it seems like universities promote af- as a whole, I'm being generalizing here, a free-thinking environment as opposed to if I own a company and I got 10 employees, I'm a little more closed on what they can do on the job and how they can act on the job or say on the job. I can have and should because I have to develop. I can't, you know, unless you know, innovation. If you want innovation, you want a very heterogeneous group of people. If not, you want somewhat. If you want just operations, you want a homogeneous group of people. So you'd want it to that. But you know, so that's that whole thing, of workplace and what they say on their own. And I think it was exacerbated by the social media aspect because I mean, like I said, if he just was out Friday afternoon clubbing with some guys and. And said something like this, eh, whatever. And but the social media has made everything. It doesn't have to be on national TV anymore because you can put it on national TV in effect by social media. And anybody who agrees with you is going to tend to boost it up to other people. And anybody who disagrees with you is going to tend to boost it up with other people. And it creates that issue. But uh, you know, in generality, I would say, yeah, either you believe in freedom of speech or you don't. I mean, if I was president of the university, I'd 
and I would have had a strong talk with him about personal responsibility, mm-hmm. both to your students and to uh, the university, and how did you in class or what? how did you talk about the other side, you know, mm-hmm. just so people understand that you know that it exists. Too many times, I think, when somebody disagree with, disagrees with us, they don't know that they don't really know that they hurt us. We were afraid, or you didn't even hear me, mm-hmm. you know. And I think expressing that, yeah, I heard you, but now here's what I think. But, yeah. And this is where we get into the ugly, right? Because there was sure. real consequences oh, for absolutely. the university, in effect, defending him. Um, a state senator at the time, Republican state senator Greg Smith, who represented the community of Overland Park was a high school teacher and said and was quoted in the press as saying, as long as Professor Guth remains employed by the University of Kansas, I will no longer recommend the university as an institution worthy of attendance by any of my students, nor as a state senator will I support any budget proposals or recommendations for the University of sure. Kansas. Yeah, I think, too, because because he was a professor, just like when I was a teacher, there's that, okay, is there a responsibility of mine in class when I talk to my students, not necessarily on social media, that they necessarily don't know what I believe, that they don't know what I feel on this, that I should be able to present both sides in a, in a valid manner, an educational manner. Now, at least what I did, right or wrong, you know, is I was trying to do that. Whether I did or not, you'd have to ask the kids. But I never responded specifically unless they'd ask me. If they'd asked me specifically, well, what do you think about this? Okay, I will tell you. But uh, I think that was kind of maybe what, in regard to that, with the, because of what he said there, in the same way, did he, you know, reiterate that in class? Because that, to me, that's different. Makes a difference whether it's just something he said and ended up on social media, or does he say it, did he say it in his classroom in his role in that? And, of course, him being a journalism professor adds an interesting weight to this, right? This isn't like a math teacher who's just on his own time. I think the fact that he was a journalism professor made expectation of what his understanding of responsibility and the privilege of being a broadcaster or someone who gets to convey their ideas on a larger stage should hold. But I think the ugliness for me is in the kind of lose-lose situation that There may have been a lot of people who, especially with the longer lens of time, say, yeah, that's right. He shouldn't have been fired. Like that was a stupid thing Mm -hmm. to say. But he there's freedom of speech and he had it and he didn't break any rules and he, he should stay. But here we've got a high school teacher who plays an active role in counseling kids on what school. And this is the flagship university of the state sure. saying, not only am I not going to tell him, I'm going to speak badly of your entire university because of this. And I'm going to fight you every step of the way on funding, which was already a really heated, challenging environment. So the university would ultimately have to accept you know, that outcome and that consequence. So we've all of a sudden taken an individual having a consequence and maybe someone doesn't want to date you anymore or doesn't like (laughs) you or won't give you a job or fires you from your job and that you have to live with that consequence. But when we're part of structures and systems, now that whole system is burdened with taking on that responsibility. That's pretty ugly. Yeah. Yeah. And if I, you know, if I may, I think a tendency we have in there relates to what the quote that you said too, that like when he... but it's going to blame the NRA. Well, I think that's a, a problem. That's an ugly in that we sometimes, it's easy for us to blame a non-person. 
right? I'm sure the NRA could talk back, but it's not the same as you, you're blaming this person. And it's easier sometimes than we might tend to do that and think, okay, we're going to solve this problem by <clears throat> dealing with this non-person and organization rather than the person that was involved. And as, no matter how hard it is, obviously difficult, but try to help that situation. So I'm going to take a quick break here because it's uh, the bottom of the hour. You're listening to Meet in the Middle Show on KDNK Community Access Radio. I'm the host, Dan Richardson, and my guests are Brian Whiting and Breeze Richardson. And we're talking about freedom of expression, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Um, yeah, I thought, you know, getting back to Professor Guth's comments, I thought it was um, a little interesting to try and figure out, is this speech protected? Because, again, uh, the Supreme Court said... Um, uh, n- not if it's inciting or producing imminent lawless actions such as violence. And his comment, let it be your sons and daughters, implying let your sons and daughters be shot, um, it, it gets a little tricky. Um, so <laughs> any thoughts You know, on it that? does. It, it makes me think about um, there's this set of one, two, three, four, five, six um, criteria that the Supreme Court has held are not, defendable speech and we we're, we're, we're familiar we evoked them earlier that you know defamation uh, true threats threats to commit a crime i'm gonna go kill right like we i think we we can get our head around that sure. um the obscenity you know obscenity child pornography um and then this interesting uh, bit about misleading commercial advertising is not protected speech right but the sixth one is fighting words and I think this gets at the question you're asking, you know, fighting words that are likely to lead to an immediate fight are punishable. But this doesn't include political statements that offend others and provoke them to violence, which is so nuanced and yet so clear. You know, so this particular citation goes on to say, for example, civil rights or anti-abortion protesters can't be silenced merely because passerbys will respond violently to their speech. So that was immediately where I went with the tenor of your question is if someone, you know, I think it's protected. I don't think those were fighting words. I think that was insensitive political statement. Um, the rep, the spokesperson, the director of communications for the university in, in all of, of this, Tim Cap- um, went on to say, you know, that uh, very much like you said, um, that it was in poor taste, you know. <laughs> Caboni said, people who engage in public discourse, quote, have a responsibility to be civil in the way we comport ourselves. And I think he was desperately trying to thread that needle and say, yeah, that wasn't very responsible. That wasn't very civil. That wasn't very productive. So how do we walk away as parents, as educators, as citizens and leaders in our community to say, well, we're not going to sanction what you can say, but we're sure going to have a conversation about what's responsible and what's civil and what kinds of conversations we want to foster and what kinds of conversations we want to pull that guy aside and say, what, what was your end goal? Like, that wasn't very pr- productive. Um, can we, as a culture, as a community, set some rules about what we consider in good taste that doesn't get the government involved and say that you're breaking a law. Um, then we get back to some of this hate speech stuff and the trauma and your right to, you know, 
especially with the amplification of social media and everyone carries a video recorder in their pocket every day and you know it's it's transformational to how easy it is for us to share information and that has changed this conversation than the version I think we would have been having 20 years ago that's a good segue go ahead Brian. well I just think at least to like it I think it's very hard for me let alone you know I get so focused on kids because doing that for so long how do they know what's the truth because you know you know the whole idea of some people can make up this well I saw it on the internet it must be true right when I was a kid it was I heard it on TV it must be true well same thing you know and all that it and that makes it very difficult these kids to know what okay what can I take in and think about it and what's right because it's uh, if some somebody has the right to say something but that doesn't mean that it's the way it is they can just you know expand it or make it bigger than it is I think sometimes you know, in, in talking about the ugly, I was going to jump to kind of the, the, the private sector and social media because, to me, there's often a lot of ugliness on social media, which is why I avoid it. Um, and I think we've covered it, sort of the rights of Twitter or Facebook as a company to do what they will to a certain degree. But let me pose this question, um, and Brian, I'll let you answer it first. Is it fair or beneficial for social media platforms to privatize the public forum through what amounts to monopolization? Are they like utilities and therefore they should be regulated more than they already are? Or are they, are they and should they be private companies and really it's, it's not a public forum, it's a private forum? It is a very much a, a private forum, but in a public fashion. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think it just further, I mean, if you start, to me, the problem is if you start controlling them, where do you stop? Does that mean then you can control the Glenwood Post, the New York Times? Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it just, like we said before, it places responsibility on those at Facebook and all the other social media aspects to, you know, make a decision. Okay, Are, can anybody say anything and we're not going to do anything about it or – this is our parameters. If you follow, I, I don't see a problem with them saying having the parameters, you know, because if you come into my house, you don't have, a, you know, there's a limit on freedom of speech there. Okay, I'll ask you to leave if it gets to a certain point. I don't think there's much difference there, in that they have that right to, but they need to have to tell people what the parameters are and enforce them. Which I mean, I don't, I don't know how they would do that. I don't have enough knowledge in cyber stuff to know how do they would do that, but I think that would be significant to let people know and then follow through with it because, again, if you start, it's hard to know where to stop if you start controlling them with that because it's an enormous power. And I think, you know, the part of me says that, well, the net result of that with we'll have all these different social medias and they're going to meet the needs of different groups, much like a business, different businesses meet the needs of different businesses. And, you know, to go in that way, because this, the power of social media is enormous. I, I should have written, I just, what this guy, I saw this guy a couple weeks ago on TV and I should have written down who he was. I didn't pay attention because what he said didn't really impact me until about 10 minutes later. And, his point was, and you could argue if it's valid or not, is social media 
because of its focus on attractiveness, accomplishment, and all this kind of thing and how things come up, is creating a whole uh, population of young men who can't succeed at that. And they don't fit. You know, they aren't getting dates on social media. They're not attractive. They don't have accomplishments. And they're lonely. And because they're lonely they, and they're not getting any attention, they seek it elsewhere. And his point was, if you look at these people who have be, are these mass shooters, that he was generalizing, obviously, that's these guys. That's if, if there's any mm-hmm. kind of common characteristic amongst them, amongst them it's that. And I had never looked at it in that fashion or not, and, but I could see where that could be true. But, I mean, it shows the power of that, I think, and places even more responsibility on the entities. You, know, you talked earlier about the Supreme Court and its evolution and that there was a time where, no, you couldn't speak out publicly against the draft. That was decided <laughs> to be encouraging illegal behavior. Um, but we've come to a place where laws that prohibit people from content-based, you know, on, on the premise of content-based restrictions, um, criticizing a war, opposing abortion, advocating for high taxes, that those aren't pro- permitted. They're unconstitutional because they're content-based in how the restrictions being applied. And one of the reasons we talk about that being problematic is because it distorts the public debate. And it contradicts this basic principle of self-governance that the government can't be trusted to decide which of the ideas the people should be allowed to hear. And so I think to your question, the challenge is, well, is Twitter a private company with people who choose to interact with it or not? Or is it mimicking what has previously been known as the role of government and is unintentionally or intentionally choosing what ideas or information the people should be allowed to hear. And when you've got that scale and that impact and algorithms that are curating and, and, and forming what information the public is allowed to hear, it makes it really confusing on whether that should be then to a company like Twitter should be seen as, and I think this is the debate they're having legislatively is, you know, should we be regulating this because it isn't, it is a public good. It's grown to be a public good. And the freedom of the press, freedom of speech protected by the First Amendment comes from this idea that it's critical that a democracy in which a government is accountable to the people, that a free media functions as watchdog, but it's also a marketplace of ideas. It's also a vehicle for ordinary citizens to express themselves and for all of us to gain exposure to a wider range of informations and opinions. I love that, that premise, even if some of those ideas or opinions, you know, I don't like. And and so, you know, where does that leave us? Is Is Twitter going too far in regulating the scope and span of the kind of information we have access to? Or does it have a different responsibility to say, hey, we're not the government. We don't have to allow everything. And you can't say that offensive stuff. You can't say that here. Um, I almost swore right there. But see, that would have not been permitted on (laughs) FCC regulation. So, you know, this idea, I mean, there's even in the – Uh, course of some of these Supreme Court decisions, um, 
justices who have said, like, it's actually really important to hear stuff you don't agree with because it helps you form your own ideas. And if we scrubbed all that out, setting aside the distinguishing judgment of whether it's good or bad speech, um, if we decide that, like, you shouldn't hear that bad thing, we're really removing the opportunity for you to grow stronger in your sensibility and your opinion in opposition to that idea than had you not heard the idea and really not had that opportunity to think about it. Yeah, I think it's important that, to me, one of the aspects is we have to be willing to take the risk to hear something that's contrary to us. Risk is a great word. Because, yeah, because how can we, you know, if you think back of in history things that are significant that occurred, that they were somewhat uh, contrary or different from the status quo. And so you have to be willing to risk even offending somebody if you're going to have and think about that, if you're going to progress into something else or else you get stuck. And because even though the status quo is the status quo, I don't think any of us want the status quo of today to be the status quo in 10 years. Right. But but I want to, I want to, clarify something that we're talking about and this is a little bit different than the right to freedom of speech it's the forum and breeze i want to clarify something you're saying and get and get both of your opinions to me the analogy is for twitter and facebook it's as if there was a radio station that had a huge monopoly of the airwaves across the entire country and at one point are we saying, no, they're monopolizing the airways, if you will, or the public forum? You know, if there was a bunch of bullies that took over the town square and really you didn't feel safe talking in there because, well, no, they didn't own that space, they're really controlling it. So, and, and I think my guess is none of us would wholly trust the government to regulate this. Is there a role for government to say, wait a minute, there's so much, they have so much of the marketplace that it's no longer just a private company, and it is public airways. So so your thoughts? Uh, I am so torn on this because, yeah. <laughs> on the one hand, I think my entire line of reasoning up until this point in the conversation <laughs> would say that's a public square, and it doesn't uh-huh. really matter if it's technically a privately held good. It functions as a public square. But I also think misinformation and the – ability to spread a hateful message and grow an audience that you would have never had the opportunity to grow, it does burden media with a different responsibility than the private citizen. And I think what's confused us or challenged us around social media is it's pretty much given the newspaper over to people who aren't trained in journalistic ethics don't really feel that responsibility in the way that a broadcaster or publisher does. Um, You know, there's another case that was in the papers just the other day um, around a private university, so it's not that public university component that we were talking about earlier, who um, sided with, empathized with an Islamic student who was offended of the presentation of an image of the Prophet Muhammad in an art history class. And fired the professor. And the professor uh, sued, the lecturer sued, and said for all these well-organized reasons, um, advance warning and options, and that this was a longstanding accepted practice in art history teaching to evoke 
this image, even though it was held as offensive to a group of people, and um, that the university walked back some of its comments. It it apologized and said it overreacted. So it might have legally had the right as a private entity to choose the speech it was allowing its teaching core to present to its students, but it seemed to have a, a journey unto itself on what was permitted and what wasn't permitted. And uh, and there was a lot of press initially upon this decision applauding the university for standing up for this Islamic student and saying, yeah, if that was offensive, then that's not what should happen. And um, I think we're going to see more and more of this. I hope we see more of this. Sure. I mean, we should be talking about this. It shouldn't be a decision made in a back room by two people. Like, I think we need some new societal norms about – where the lines of responsibility are held. And I don't want that speech, but I don't want the government saying the, sure. that, that it, I don't think I do. I mean, that, that's really, it's really hard for me to, to think about um, Fred Phelps picketing a single church and his audience being those who walked by versus millions of people engaging in disseminating, you know, building um, really false narratives mm-hmm. of systems of belief um, that's that seems so different to me in a way that I get I'm not sure I get really yeah. uncertain about how we should be protecting our citizens right so many of our other rules um, right we live in a U.S. forest right here and you can't just go do anything you want in the in the in a U.S. protected forest like there's rules and those rules say our access to that public good is more important than his or her right to take their off-road vehicle and drive around in it mm-hmm. you know and so does speech have a corollary where there's things that we say no that's too harmful to, to too many people and it doesn't really have an upside to the public discourse sure well i think back to your original question about the almost like a monopoly argument with them should they be controlled i mean there's actually precedent for that with how they've dealt with business mm-hmm. and the concept that the supreme court uh what validated of the company doesn't have to be singular. They can be a constructive monopoly, so bar- so large and dominate the market so much they can act as if they were a monopoly. Of course, the argument which it would mean that okay, yes, they should. We should be able to. Well, court has broken up companies before, from Standard Oil Company on down. But uh, in should we first in our economic system? Why doesn't somebody come in and? Uh, uh, be a competitor to to Twitter, to be a competitor to Facebook. Now we know all that's such enormously difficult to do. Easier said than done, but you know I think that's like first course before you jump in and say, okay, we better split you up and do that because as we've seen, that has limited effectiveness as well uh, because you know our country wasn't when our founding fathers couldn't ever anticipate. A company that was so large that no one would go into competition with it. You know, way back to the bells and all that kind of stuff with the phone business. Uh, yeah, I know what you're talking about when you say the bells, Brian. I'm old enough, so. <laughs> <laughs> um, good. So, but it's it, I'm I'm hearing that the, there isn't a definitive answer from you, and and to me, I guess the question is, it's not whether the government would break it up. It would be would they. Should they require that entity, in the case we're talking about Twitter or Facebook or Instagram, to uphold um, freedom of speech and and uh, 
things of that nature. And it's a, it's a tricky one, that's for sure. I think it's also complicated, Dan, by this, these algorithms and the fact that it's not just you hitting send or post, but that there's manipulation by the model that the business is operating on to promote or demote content. Sure. And I think that complicates it so dramatically because mm-hmm. now you have an editorial view. Now you're choosing what the people get to have access to in this sure. discourse. So I'm not expert enough to know what the implications of that are, but I definitely think that manipulation of distribution and access adds a different element into someone just standing on the corner here with a sign and then us all seeing it sure. versus putting it on Twitter and, and kind of how that transforms the message. Sure. I think it does it, uh, that does freedom of speech rate into go to right of privacy? You know, they have those apps and you know, software now where you can follow a plane and you can follow somebody's car. Right. And I mean, I got, I didn't realize that, uh, duh, I didn't realize that was going on until they were talking about on the golf channel. <laughs> they knew where Tiger Woods was because they had to tracking his boat in the oh. ocean and they were tracking his plane. So they went to new here. Well, and the argument for that, because people were complaining about that, it says, my, it's freedom of speech that I know where they are, which I thought was a stretch. <laughs> a big stretch, I'd say. You know, and right, you know, you know, we still have to have some degree of right of privacy, but I thought it was interesting that they would pull freedom of speech into that aspect. Yeah, yeah, yeah that is interesting. Um, we are getting close to time, and I, there's one question that I, I really wanted to ask before we ended. And, uh, Brian, I'm going to put this one to you first. On a local level, how do we minimize the harm that can be delivered via microaggressions that we, you know, that could be protected in freedom of speech, but they're nonetheless microaggressions, um, while also building psychological resiliency? I thought that was an interesting term I heard the other day. Uh, and I think that psychological resiliency also speaks to that personal responsibility. So sure. your thoughts on oh, that? Oh, yeah. I think, I mean, it kind of relates back to where I thought back in the older days, you kind of tended to let stuff roll off their back end anymore, even when I was a kid, it seemed like. But, you know, as a teacher, I'd have kids asking me about that. And one of the things I always told them, and it seemed to click in them a little bit, I said, you know, if somebody is disparaging you, saying something against you, they obviously don't care about you. And as hard as it is, right, which it is, especially when you're a teenager, you know, do you want to let somebody who doesn't care about you control you? Mm-hmm. And for some of the kids, that seemed to click. For other ones, not so much, and I'd have to, you know, try to work with them in a, in a, in a different vein and give them some more things, you know, techniques that try to deal with bullying and stuff like that which is what it could be sometimes with that. But I know that's just what I would try to do to try to help build that resilience in them, the ability to handle something like that and not let it, you know, get in there, let it bounce off, so to speak. Mm-hmm. I totally agree. I love that word, that idea of psychological resiliency. And when you were talking, I thought of, um, like, the the image that came to mind was when, um, like, a speaker at a podium and the audience is disagreeing, usually a political figure, with what that person's saying, and they don't leave the speech, right? They turn their backs to the speaker, right? This incredibly visual, I'm not in agreement 
with what you're saying. They're not throwing tomatoes. They're not sure. booing or chanting, right? This incredibly powerful, silent protest. And so I think about that. Like, what if as a, as a community, you know, there were these visual cues or these ways in which we said, I'm not stopping you from talking, but I'm sure not endorsing or supporting what, you, what you're saying. And, and how do we teach our kids as educators, as parents, as community leaders to say that speech and, and they're entitled to it. But you don't have to agree with it. You don't have to listen to it. You know, you can be more resilient. I'm fascinated with the idea of uh, tolerance of ambiguity. And I wonder if this isn't a sibling in some ways to say, can we impact our tolerance for resilience? Can we impact how willing we are to be a, a confronted with things we disagree with and not just recoil from that, but sure. actually say, ah, that's a horrible idea. Let me tell you why. And engage. I, I think we have a different outcome than the kind of pent up anger that we're really uncertain with what to do with that energy or those ideas in, in the yeah. way. And I think locally we live in a kind of community where we could be transformational in how we engage in discourse and how we shut down speech that we don't think is productive or proactive for the community we want to build. It's a, one of the hard things about that resilience, however, is to me, at least with the kids, was you have to give them that experience to know how to handle it. Wow. Well, we're getting near the end, um, but I wanted to uh, thank you both for being here. And I think that last question was a good segue for me of uh, um, encouraging other people to, to be guests on the show. I appreciate your courage and your resiliency and your pursuit <laughs> of freedom. Thank you to Katie and Kay. And uh, Enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you, Dan. Thank you. Appreciate it.